morning, everyone. Uh, if you got an email from me at 7.30 saying the car park road had changed and you went there and it wasn't open, the other one was open, my apologies, it was a difficult morning. Anyway, you could park in the car park. That's a good thing. I'm going to pray. Let's listen to God. Father, we do thank you we can be here today and we pray that there would be a real sense of you with us by your spirit to help open our eyes and our minds so that we might know you better and follow you more truly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when is a person truly converted? Um, We come to the chapter, which is the turning point in the story of Jesus in Luke's Gospel. And the overarching question that comes through in this chapter is, who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus, that Luke has been telling us the story about? And I want to couple with that the question, uh, what does it mean to be truly converted as a Christian? We've seen that um, people are like the four soils and we saw it in the kids' talk earlier. Um, Some people will just say no, some people respond yes today, no tomorrow, others will get choked by the weeds and others will go on and be fruitful in their faith. And we talked about the fact that people can be converted by all sorts of things but There's only one true conversion is to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be truly converted? And so the key question is this, what is your assessment of Jesus? Who do you think he is? As the story has unfolded, seen that Jesus is someone who uh, was really an unknown person. He was prophesied from birth that he would be born. But yet he came from a family of unmarried parents. Great embarrassment in that day. Humbly born in very simple circumstances. The only physical people, if I can say, the angels witnessed his birth, but it was just a motley crew of shepherds who were there to see him born. And yet from the earliest of age, this unknown man, unschooled, uh, no place to lay his head, began to confound all and amaze all. And we come to chapter 9, which is really the turning point in this story. And the real question is this, who is this man Jesus? And what does it really mean to be converted as a Christian? When you look through history, there is no doubt that history changed from this moment forward. And there's what I would call a Jesus-shaped footprint that marks history from this day forward. There's no doubt about that. Uh, The world has been profoundly changed by this man. He had no connections with politics, no ear of any ruler, no place to call his own. His followers, unimpressive, unknown, ordinary, unschooled people. And yet it's hard to imagine a world today where his influence is not known. Let me give you one example, um, just the calendar. The whole calendar of the world is now organised by his entrance into the world. Uh, We live in the time frame of 2013 years AD. AD, if you're not familiar, is the Latin words Anno Domino. It means the year of our Lord. You see, before Jesus was born, uh, the powerful regimes of that day sought to establish their importance 
by dating the calendar around their existence. Uh, Roman emperors would date events according to the years of their reign. Now, interestingly, that hasn't ceased. Um, Through history, people have tried to, in a sense, affect the calendar. The French Revolution tried to enlighten everyone with a calendar that marked the reign of reason. Uh, Russia, in the last century, the USSR, they dated time from the disposing of the Tsar and theoretically giving power to the people. Uh, They formed what was called the League of the Militant Godless. Now, what a description for a group of people. We are the League of the Militant Godless. You can see what their aims are. It's not hard to work out. Uh, They wanted to stamp out faith. And they sought to date time according to these great events. The problem was the leader of the League, uh, some... Uh, the man was Yemlin Yaroslavsky. He said, Christianity is like a nail. He said, the harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. In other words, their efforts to eradicate faith and religion and Christianity had the opposite effect. It just spread at a deeper level. Who is this man that has changed the world indelibly that we live in. Who is this man? Well, we come to a very fascinating chapter. It's chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles there, do open it up, page 1025. And there's a number of points I'd like to observe before we get to the climax in the second half of the reading. Now, the first thing is this. Um, Jesus sent out followers who changed the course of of history. There is no doubt about that from a historical point of view. Uh, the Jesus movement had such a historical impact, it changed the history, not just of that day, but I would say uh, the very essence of our life today is still affected profoundly by Jesus and the movement of his followers post his arrival. Look at verse 1 and 2. Jesus had called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Up until this point in the story, Jesus has himself, if I can say, been going out and doing incredible works. He has proclaimed that the kingdom of God is near. He has healed the sick. He has cast out demons. He has had full control of nature. He's even raised the dead and we saw that climactically last week when Mike was preaching that he could calm a storm. He could cast a legion of demons out of a man that had been possessed for years. He could heal a woman whose bleeding had been uncontrolled and made her unclean. He could even raise Jairus' daughter from death. And so people flocked to Jesus. No wonder. Anyone who has that power and authority, the crowds will swell. But Jesus now turns that on its head and he now sends those who've been with him out in his name and with his authority and with his power. And you see the word there in verse 2, he sent them out. And it's a very simple word, it's the word apostolos. It's where we get the word apostle. Now the apostles, as many of you will know, were the twelve. They were the disciples. In the Gospels they're called the disciples. They're learning. In the New Testament period after that, when the book of Acts was written and the church began, they're called the apostles. You see, they're the ones who were sent with authority and to be an apostle is literally a sent one. And Jesus is now sending 
these 12 out in chapter 9. But he's sending them with power and authority. Go and drive out demons. Go and heal the sick. Go and cure diseases. And announce to them the kingdom of God is near. Now you get to chapter 10 and there's 72 who are sent out. You get to the end of Luke's gospel, the beginning of Acts, the whole church is sent out and he empowers us. Who is this man who can, if I can say, so affect humanity and those who follow him that they leave this indelible footprint with his shape on it in history? The crowds in that day were amazed. The Roman world was turned upside down. Who is this man that no connection with kings or was a wandering preacher and teacher in his day and no place to call his home, yet had this incredible power and authority who transformed a group of unknown, uneducated followers into a missional task force that changed the world as he sent them out. There's so many parts of history that have been touched by Jesus and by his followers in his name. You see, where was a movement before Jesus that included everyone regardless of their race, their gender, their status, their capacities, their abilities, whether they were able or disabled. Uh, There is no movement in the world, there was none prior, as inclusive as what you see with Jesus who welcomes everyone. Where was there a group before Jesus that worked with people who had addictions. It's interesting, the 12-step program that is around the world, its roots are in a Christian person. Jesus changed how we look at history. Uh, Before Jesus, history was just this cycle of events that cycled over and over again. But yet, since Jesus, we see that history has progressed. There is a beginning in creation and there is an end. And the end of history will be when Jesus returns. Uh, Before Jesus, where did people care for children? And that might seem such an odd thing to say. But you see, it was common for children in Jesus' day who were weak or malformed or the wrong gender to be killed. You will still see that in parts of the world today. But that began to change when Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And whenever you've seen the spread of the Jesus movement, you've seen the spread of care for those who are marginalised. You've seen the spread of care for children who are orphans and cut off from parents. Let the little children come. Uh, In the ancient world, no one associated love with God. You see, Zeus or Baal, uh, they weren't known by love. Um, The discovery of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs is a discovery that came from discovering the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Martin Luther's dream of racial equality was not a secular dream. It was driven by his understanding of Jesus and that in Christ there is racial equality. Uh, In terms of the the whole concept of love, I remember a man uh, coming to speak at my past church. Uh, He ministers in Sydney. He's a converted Muslim. Now, he had a very, if I can say, dramatic conversion, a vision of Jesus in Algeria, which is a predominantly Muslim country. 
through radio dialogue, he grew in his faith. His family disowned him. He's got a damaged liver from his mother trying to poison him. He's got scars on his hands from his brother trying to stab him. When his uncle came at him with the axe, he thought it was time to leave home. He came and spoke to help us understand the Islamic faith. This man has to move every second year in Sydney because of threats to his life. Uh, To contact him is like contacting the CIA. You leave messages and suddenly you get a return phone call. Not that I contact the CIA. He was asked the question, how is love conceived of with Allah? He just looked quizzically at us. Well, they don't, Muslims. It's not a characteristic of Allah. He is just, he is fair, but the concept that he is love, Well, that's not there. The concept that God loves the world is profoundly rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ through his death for the world. You see, he sent out followers who changed the course of human history. Who is this man? Um, Even world rulers are intrigued by the Lord Jesus. Now, one of the world rulers of that day was Herod. And you get this very interesting little description of Herod and his spiritual intrigue. Have a look at verse 7. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. Now, he's not Herod as in King Herod, the one who had all the little children murdered because he was afraid another ruler was being born. This is his son. This is Herod Antipas. And so he heard about what was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. You see, uh, the news about Jesus was spreading everywhere and people were asking, who is this man? And John uh, Herod says, well, who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. From the lowest of low to the highest of high and Herod was a ruler of that day. He was a city builder. He renewed cities. He had the ear of Rome and the Emperor Tiberius. Even he wants to find out the answer to this question, who is this Jesus? And Luke then tells us the very famous story of the feeding of the 5,000. And you see here the question being raised, who is this man? This one who cares for people who feeds them. Let's look at this famous story. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they'd done. And of course, there's great excitement. You see, um, they've gone out and they've seen in their own life and their own ministry, God working through them to heal the sick and to cast out demons and tell people about the kingdom. Then he took them with them and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Well, there's no surprises there. Uh, Jesus is in town. He is incredible. He's powerful. And the crowds flock. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. There's this incredible care and compassion that you continually see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. Now, it's worth saying in the culture of that day, 
uh, it would have been expected that if someone came, you would look after them. They have a very strong culture of hospitality. Now, hospitality is not what we think of it, if I can say, in our Western culture. We think of hospitality as being a friend to our friends. We'll have our friends over. Uh, that's not that culture. Hospitality, the word literally means in the original language that you are a friend of a stranger. And so to send them out to the villages was not a cruel thing. Uh, there would be an expectation they'd be looked after, they'd be housed, they'd be fed. Uh, even though there's 5,000 men, in other words, over 10,000 in the crowd most likely when you add the women and the children. That's just the way they counted in that culture. And he replied, well, you give them something to eat. Now, it's worth saying Jesus has already given them power and authority to heal sickness and disease. Uh, it's almost like a missional test. See how I can use you. You see, the disciples had to learn about what faith in God meant. Well, they failed on this test, uh, but they would succeed in incredible ways later on. They answered, if I can say quite naturally, wouldn't we? Well, we've only got five loaves of bread and two fish. That's not a lot of food. Uh, if I'm having 12 people over, I'll have more than five loaves of bread and two fish to try and feed them. And they probably were just little kippers when you think about it. And he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks and he broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people and they all ate, all 10,000 of them. And they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of bread, uh, broken pieces that were left over. It's the most incredible miracle. Uh, interestingly, it's one of the very few that's recorded in all four Gospels. Now, people have doubted the veracity of this event. Uh, I have no doubts about it. It's one of those incredible things that if you were there, you would never forget this. Seeing Jesus take two kippers and, you know, a couple of loaves of bread and feed a crowd of 10,000 people. I mean, how did it happen? And that's how people speculate. What did the miracle look like? Did he just kept on dealing fish? I mean, I don't know. We're not told. It's not relevant. You see, what's relevant is what's being spoken of here. I want to make two observations. This miracle is no accident. When you look at the miracles of Jesus, there are many that are thrust upon him. Uh, such was his, if I can say, incredible appeal and authority. People literally thrust themselves into his presence to even just touch his cloak. Such was the power of the man. And such was his compassion, he never turned people away. And so there were miracles that just happened because as he went through life, he just had to deal with this incredible flood of human need. But yet there's this other group of miracles where there's this sense of premeditation, if I can put it that way, this sense of Jesus is wanting to do something and surprise people with what he does. And I think this is one of them. He could have just sent them on their way to the villages. But no, he wants to make a statement. He wants to, in a sense get them to think at a deeper level about who he is. Now, think with me. When do you see in the Bible thousands of Israelites being fed from nothing? When in the Bible do you see that? 
Well, if you're not familiar with it, there's two famous episodes. One is in Exodus 16 and one is in Numbers 11. And you can read Psalm 78 that reflects on it. God fed the people of Israel in the desert with manna and quail. The people were grumbling. The people were hungry. God provided for them. Have a look at Exodus 16. I've got it on the screen there. This is the summary at the end. After the grumbling and God provides, this is what the Lord has commanded, Moses said. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Jesus is fully aware of Israelite history and he does a miracle to align himself with God. Those stories were famous, if I can say, in the culture of Israel and in the identity of Israel about the God who had saved them in the Exodus. And the God who provides, Jesus is saying, is here with you right now. It is a very powerful story that Jesus intentionally made happen to demonstrate to them that Yahweh has come in the flesh in the person of his son Jesus. And it begs the question if you're the disciples and if you're the crowd, who is this man? Let's read on. It's interesting the way Luke puts his gospel together because you see this follows with the most famous discussion about Jesus' identity. Verse 18, Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? And you see the crowds have now witnessed him calm nature, heal sickness, cast out demons, have full control of this world, even raising the dead, and he's now done the very thing that Yahweh himself had done. Who do the crowds say I am? Well, some are saying John the Baptist. Maybe he's come back to life. Since John had had his head cut off by this stage by the Herod. Others say Elijah. Elijah had gone back to heaven. And it was prophesied he would return. He was a great miracle worker. There's still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Maybe this is Moses incarnate. In other words, the crowds haven't worked it out yet about who this Jesus is. They know there's something very special. But what about you? And he turns to his 12. Who do you say I am? Peter, in this moment of divine revelation, answered, You're the Christ. And the Christ is the promised king, the one like King David. That's you. You're the king. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. 
And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers for law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised alive. Well, that's a nice kid. <laughs> totally overturning their expectations. You see, when you look at John's Gospel, chapter 6, um, thinking that he is a king, they take him and they want him to, if I can say, lead a revolution and he just walks away because he has not come to bear arms. He has only come so that his arms might be bare and spread and him crucified. Yes, I am the Christ and this Christ will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. He'll be killed and raised to life. And then he makes the most outrageous of claims. He says this, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone would recognise that I am the Messiah, that I am the King that God has sent, I'm the one with all authority. If anyone wants to come after me, here's the deal. You must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And here's the outrageous claim. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. For what good is it for a man or woman to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. It's an incredible claim. He's saying, yes, I am the king. And more than that, I control the destiny of all humanity. And there are two ways you can respond. Once you've worked out I'm the king, the first way is you can recognise that I'm the one with all authority and that I love you and that I can save your life. I can give you life. But if you want that, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to say no to living for me and you've got to take up your cross. And the cross was a symbol of death, a crucifixion. In other words, if you want life and salvation, come to me. But let go of your life and whatever it is that you're holding on to. Because what will it profit you if you gain the whole world? You get everything that you want. Well, actually, you're going to lose it because you will forfeit your very self. And I want you to stop and think about this. What is the person who is truly converted? It's not just the person who recognises that Jesus is the king. That he is the one who dies for the world and has risen again. It's the person who sees him and understands who Jesus is and then turns away from their old life of holding on to their life and holding on to this world and they let go and they follow. What will it profit you to try and hold on to your possessions, your aspirations, your relational dreams, your finances, your career? Whatever it is of this world that you want, 
what will it profit you? Jesus says, well, if you do it, you'll actually get that, but you'll lose your life, your very soul. There will only be judgment. You might get life in this world, but in the life to come, there will be judgment and destruction. If you want life that is eternal, let go of your life now and take hold of Jesus. You see, that's what it means to be truly converted. It's to see the king and to let go of your life and offer him everything. Everything. And here's the incredible paradox. We think when we would let go, we will lose everything. Well, we will. But the irony is, in letting go, we will discover everything in Christ. We will find life and acceptance and meaning and purpose and forgiveness and salvation. Who is this man? The Christian faith comes down to that question and the question of what will you do with his outrageous claim? Let go of your life and follow me. Friends, if you've not taken that step, do it today. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Do you know what stopped me from becoming a Christian? I thought if I let go of my life, it would be over. And the irony was, my life was getting worse and worse as I held on to it. I had to let go of it and then I found life. As you die, so will you live. Let go of your lives and take hold of the life that's in Christ. I'm going to come back and lead us in a prayer, but before that, I wanted to show one of my favourite videos because Jesus is astounding and he's my king. And when I came here to St Matthews, I showed a video when I first started and I thought, I haven't played it for about four and a half years. And there's a lot of new people here and it's one of my favourites. I thought, I'll play it this day to remind us of who our king is. And then I'm going to invite people to respond after that. Let's have a look.